Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is one of my favorite spots. You'll love it. Hey, Brownie. Got someone here I'd like you to meet. Who's this? Walter Liggett. Meet Brownie Bronstein. Well, glad to meet you at last. I've written about you. Relax, fella. You've written about everyone in here. So, did Kid give you the offer? I'm not for sale. Come on, Walter. We've heard about your financial problems. Surely your wife and kids would like to move out of that cheap apartment. Maybe you'd even be able to afford your own lawyer. No, thank you. I've heard enough offers. The man's got principles, Brownie. He's a man of integrity. Gotta respect that. Still want that no hard feelings drink, Walt? I think I should go. Sorry, Walter. What did you say earlier? Yeah. It's nothing personal. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on Walter Liggett a Prohibition-era journalist gunned down in Minneapolis, Minnesota. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Walter Liggett was a prolific and controversial journalist throughout the Prohibition era a lifelong champion of radical policies, and a staunch enemy of systematic corruption. He was frequently referred to by critics and supporters alike as a muckraker. 
or a journalist who will stop at nothing to dig up and expose corrupt individuals. His pieces were scathing, passionate, and often informed by a sense of righteous outrage at the pervasive nature of organized crime throughout the roaring 20s and into the 30s. During his life, there were a number of smear campaigns attempting to discredit his work, which persisted even after his death. While he would often come under fire for being a vindictive reporter, his pieces were always thoroughly researched and factually airtight. So while his public reputation was varied, he worked consistently throughout his professional life. It was his sterling reputation as a researcher that kept him employed throughout the Great Depression, even if the salary of a freelance writer was never enough for his family to live comfortably. His professional ethics meant that he never accepted a bribe of any kind, regardless of frequent financial problems. And it was this absolute refusal to compromise that landed him in deadly waters. Walter Liggett was born on February 14, 1886, on a family stock farm near Benson, Minnesota. His father, William, was a farmer and Civil War veteran who taught at the local agricultural college, and his mother, Matilda R. B. Liggett, was a fiercely independent woman who kept her maiden name as her middle initials. Handsome and athletic, he lived a pretty idyllic American childhood. The men he grew up with would later recall that even as a young boy, Walter was uncommonly idealistic and driven, devouring newspapers and books about labor law and gold rush era corruption. Despite this interest, he did not go to school for either journalism or political theory. Following in his brother Bob's footsteps, he attended the agricultural college his father taught at in 1904 at the age of 18. During this time, he was an active boxer and football player, as well as an excellent student. But he always knew he was not well suited for farm life. (sighs) Okay. Let me take five, Walter. You got it. Whew. You got quite the right cross there, brother. Say, Bob, I've been wondering something. (sighs) If this is another tirade about labor reform, we'll have to step back into the ring. I got offered a job at Pioneer Press. As what, an errand boy? As a reporter. They want me to start as soon as possible. What about your schooling? I'm never going to be a farmer like Dad. But as a reporter, I could actually make a difference. This country is in dire need of reform. If you've read any Upton Sinclair, you'd see countless examples. I get it. You want to change the world. Is that it? I... well, yes. What do you think? (laughs) I think you've already made up your mind. I've never been able to talk you out of anything, little brother. Come on, I'm rested up. After a year at the agricultural school, Walter Liggett left college to work for the St. Paul Pioneer Press in 1905. He was 19 years old and entirely self-taught. For the next four years, Walter worked as a police and general reporter, moving from local paper to local paper. He was well-liked at each of his jobs, but the papers he worked for rarely published his more radical material, causing him to always feel a little out of place. After the St. Paul Pioneer Press, he worked at the Minneapolis Journal and Minneapolis Daily News before finally taking his first job out of state in Seattle. In 1909, the intrepid 23-year-old was offered a job as managing editor of The Alaskan, 
an eight-page tabloid in Skagway, Alaska. In Skagway, Walter realized just how pervasive criminals could be in local government. A compact resort town, Skagway was home to a con man named Soapy Smith. Wally presented himself as the town's benefactor by donating to public works and supporting local businesses. Smith was engaged with a number of shady dealings, including gambling and prostitution. When Walter Liggett arrived to work at the Alaskan, he found that all the journalists in Skagway were too afraid to do any critical reporting on Smith's operations. The only man brave enough was the elderly editor of the Alaskan, Jim Dunbar. Are you the new managing editor? Yes, I am. Walter Liggett. I'll be damned. You're just a kid. Another letter for you, Dunbar. If it's another death threat, just throw it on the pile. I don't get it. I know you've only been here a short while, but have you heard of Soapy Smith? Yeah, the business owner, right? <laughs> That's putting it charitably. Anyway, he's one of our most avid readers. I hear from him all the time. You know what his last correspondence to me said? What? He says he'll shoot me on sight. <laughs> I don't see what's so funny about that. When gangsters start threatening to kill you, that's when you know you've hit on a story worth pursuing. See what I mean, kid? I think so, but... But nothing. This is a win for us. Honest reporting will always put you in danger. You want a safe job? Go be a farmer. You hear me? I hear you. Liggett's time working alongside Jim Dunbar strengthened his resolve to be a good journalist in spite of threats or intimidation. But his time in Skagway wasn't exclusively work. At age 24, he met his first wife, Norma J. Ask, the daughter of a local store owner. They married in the fall of 1910. Their relationship was more of a physical attraction than an ideological one. She was in love with him, but did not share his radical notions. She came from a merchant family, and his socialist leanings were always an unspoken difference between the two of them. In October 1910, Walter left Skagway with Nora to once again work in Washington. They lived there for five years, even owning and operating his own paper briefly, before the death of his sister forced him to return to Minnesota in 1915 to comfort his grieving mother. From 1915 to 1919, Walter moved from Minnesota to North Dakota, dedicating the majority of his time to advocating for the Nonpartisan League, an organization formed with the express purpose of preventing corporate influences from taking advantage of farmers. This was Walter Liggett's pet cause, as he could combine his agricultural upbringing with his socialist ideals. He helped organize and run farmer-controlled newspapers, which he saw as the best way to get the working man's interests into the public eye. Through 1919, he even wrote passionate letters to the famous reformer Upton Sinclair, telling him about the progressive wave sweeping his home state of Minnesota. I believe that with this humble beginning, we are destined to change the entire American press. It seemed he spoke too soon, as he was soon removed from his position in the league due to a quarrel with one of the other editors. But the setback did little to curb his enthusiasm for supporting the Nonpartisan League, whose policies he would endorse for the rest of his career. In January 1920, Walter left North Dakota for more fertile pastures. He had just accepted a position based out of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Walter Liggett saw the D.C. of the 1920s as the perfect place for a crusader journalist. 
He wanted to fight the anti-socialist sentiment that was sweeping the nation's capital at the time and do his part in exposing government malpractice. No doubt he saw this job offer as more than a chance for career advancement. He saw it as a chance to begin his crusade against big government corruption. Up next, we'll explore how Walter Liggett thrived on the East Coast and his battle with Prohibition-era corruption. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now back to the story. Walter Liggett was a 34-year-old idealist when he arrived in Washington, D.C. in January 1920. After spending his 20s in various editorial positions in Alaska, North Dakota, and his home state of Minnesota, he felt more than ready to tackle the countrywide issues felt in Washington, D.C. While he was drawn by the chance to write about the political climate of the time, his wife Norma was drawn by the social scene and bustling city life. A few months earlier, in October of 1919, Congress passed the Volstead Act, ushering America into the now infamous era of prohibition. Prohibition itself would go into effect two weeks after Walter and Norma arrived in the Capitol. While Walter Liggett had advocated for temperance and liquor controls in the past, prohibition soon became the ideal breeding ground for the sort of top-down corruption Liggett despised. In the fall of 1921, Walter started to court enemies in high places. Due to his work with the Nonpartisan League, Walter was recommended to head the American Committee for Russian Famine Relief. At the time, over 20 million Russian citizens were on the verge of starvation and facing a typhus outbreak. As public support grew for the relief effort, the current Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, publicly denounced it. He asked the Bureau of Investigation to do a full report on Walter Liggett and asked the post office to trace his mail. The government agents found no financial ties between Liggett and any foreign power. Hoover, however, did not accept this report. As far as he was concerned, Walter Liggett was a Soviet sympathizer. Walter, what's wrong? The government, that's what. Harding, Hoover, all 40 thieves. Calm down, dear. This administration is more interested in lining their own pockets than aiding in an actual humanitarian crisis. I can't believe this. Everyone is merely doing what they believe is right. I'm sure, from Wilson's perspective... It's greed! Greed and ignorance. I can't abide this kind of attitude in our country. In D.C., Walter and Norma started to drift apart. Though their respect for each other never faltered, 
Walter's unyielding radicalism was becoming too much for his wife to handle. This all came to a head when he moved to New York City in 1922 to work for the socialist paper, The New York Call. This time, instead of following her husband, Norma stayed behind in Washington. During one of his first journeys up to the Big Apple, Walter was invited to the 21st birthday party of Edith Fleischer, a young feminist and socialist writer who worked for the call. When he arrived, he found 16 party members, including Edith, lying on the floor in pain. They had opened a bottle of bootleg champagne to celebrate her coming of age, only to discover it was poisoned with wood alcohol. Walter spent the rest of that night nursing the partygoers back to health. Here, drink this. Who are you? Well, I was going to be your guest. Now I suppose I'm your nurse. Walter Liggett. Edith Fleischer. Happy birthday, Ms. Fleischer. You won't tell anyone about this, will you? Certainly not. I'm a big supporter of solidarity among co-workers. You write for the call? On and off. I figured. You talk like a socialist. I hope that isn't a problem. Edith related to Walter in a way that Norma never could. She shared his passion for radical causes, his self-taught background, and his insatiable work ethic. The call was a perfect place for these young progressives, even if the pay was subpar. Both Walter and Edith would often work late hours together, Edith working from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. as woman's page editor, police reporter, and occasionally Walter's secretary. As is so often the case, their close proximity fostered more than just professional respect. In July 1922, only a few months after he moved to New York City, Walter Liggett requested a hasty divorce from Norma. He then married Edith. Edith considered Walter to be the most handsome man she had ever met. Between the mutual physical attraction and their shared ideological drive, it was an ideal match for both parties. There was a 14-year age gap, but neither seemed to care. Even Norma, who was extremely upset at the time, later recognized how perfect a couple Edith and Walter were. They worked side-by-side at The Call for a little less than a year. You look more stressed than usual. (sighs) Just had a discussion with Charlie. He thinks I should be less argumentative with the new reporters. Really? He did know who he was hiring, right? I swear, if I have to justify not supporting Lenin one more time... If you get tired of them, send them to me. I'll whip some sense into them. (laughs) What would I do without you? After the Russian Revolution of 1917, socialist causes in America were more divided than ever. Some saw the revolution as a bright beacon for workers everywhere, while others were more cynical about how the situation was unfolding in Russia. Walter Liggett was firmly in the latter category. He became controversial among New York socialists for criticizing the lack of free speech in the new Soviet state. Walter resigned from his position at the call in 1923, when the board started asking him to fire reporters due to their own personal grudges. The paper would fold shortly after his departure. Then-editor Charles Irwin wrote regretfully about the paper's 1923 dissolution. The battle between those who stood for the social democratic principles and those who stood for the dictatorship in Russia 
finally resulted in doing what all the forces of reaction in the United States could not do, put an end to the call and the magnificent fight for human rights it had waged for over 15 years. Walter was a freelance writer once again. Fortunately, the post-war boom of the 1920s made, for at least a little while, the life of a freelance writer sustainable. Edith became pregnant with their first child in late 1923, so she did not seek a new job immediately after the collapse of the call. She would, however, continue to work in journalism indirectly, editing and contributing to her husband's work throughout his career. The Liggett family, Walter, Edith, and their two children, Wallace and Marta, traveled all over the country as Walter bounced from paper to paper, writing everything from local coverage to pulp detective stories. They lived in Cape Cod and Montana before moving back to North Dakota in 1928, where Walter campaigned for Alfred E. Smith, Herbert Hoover's opponent in the presidential race. Liggett was still not fond of Hoover, who had investigated him for Soviet ties seven years earlier. He would frequently refer to Hoover backhandedly, calling him a master of propaganda. Herbert Hoover was elected president that year. Then, the winter after the election, the Liggett family moved back to Washington, D.C. We're here. Wake up, kids. Wow, the road really knocked them out. Penny for your thoughts, Walter? The house? It looks good. And? How does it feel, being back in the capital? <sighs> like I never left. I can already smell the corruption. I think that's the back alley hooch you're smelling. Same thing. Walter's return coincided with another one of his personal crusades, Prohibition. While he had advocated as a young man for liquor control, he saw the Volstead Act as a largely useless and performative piece of legislation that allowed mobsters to flourish and crime to control the liquor industry. He began his anti-prohibition crusade with a series of passionate but heavily researched articles for Plain Talk magazine from September 1929 to August 1930. His first article was entitled, Why Dry Killers Go Free? a deep dive into 136 accidental shooting deaths caused by trigger-happy prohibition agents. He would later use arrest records, liquor confiscation records, and interviews to put together a rough and informed picture of the entire underground liquor industry in Washington, D.C. This included everything from the location and number of bootleggers to the quality of the moonshine itself. He accused many government officials of brazenly violating laws they publicly supported. His crusade did not stop within the confines of the Capitol. Soon he started to reach outside of Washington, D.C. for stories of Prohibition's failures. His plain talk articles included such provocative titles as Body Boston and Holy Hypocritical Kansas, both published in early 1930. Both articles caused an uproar in their local states, not only because of their content, but because Walter Liggett's research was so airtight. In February 1930, he was called to testify before the House Judiciary Committee in the first open investigation into the merits of prohibition. His diligent reporting had made him one of the foremost experts on crime under the Volstead Act. Walter Liggett's testimony reportedly went almost three hours, drawn out by frequent applause breaks. 
Every racketeer, every gangster, every rat of the underworld, regardless of what his specialized activity is, he gets his main income and his certain steady source of income from some connection with the liquor racket, with a rum runner or a bootlegger. The root of the problem is corruption. When you go to your sheriff or your federal enforcement officer or your county constable and you slip him some money to let you ride in with a load of rum, the minute you give him but $10, for that moment, he has surrendered his integrity and his manhood to your keeping. If we have 10 more years of prohibition, the nation will be ruled by gangsters, underworld rats, and crooked politicians. Even after this rapturous testimony, he continued to write piece after piece on the failures of prohibition. From January to July, he published a piece a month on how different states had succumbed at the hypocrisy of the era. Some titles include Georgia, Godly but Guzzling, Whoopee in Oklahoma, Ohio, Lawless and Unashamed, and Pittsburgh, Metropolis of Corruption. The lead editor of Plain Talk then died, and Walter assumed the role, but this did not last long. Two issues later, in September 1930, Plain Talk closed its doors. Well, that's it. It's done. You kept it going as long as you could. Do you think there's something wrong with me? First the call, now Plain Talk. Am I the harbinger of doom for these papers? No, you aren't. You're just the man who keeps going when everyone else has called it quits. Let's go. After Plain Talk closed in 1930, the Liggett family packed up and moved once again. They would never return to the nation's capital. Unemployed and with a family to feed, Walter Liggett found himself wandering the country once again, looking for a steady source of income. He spent the fall of 1930 in Chicago and the winter in California. During this time, Walter continued his research into a pet project he had been working on since the election, an unauthorized biography of President Herbert Hoover, who was then going up for re-election in a year. Walter and Edith were both heavily involved in this project. Walter spent much of his time writing. Edith would aid in his research and proofread each draft until its completion in 1932. But Liggett's first publisher, Bonai and Livewright, rescinded their lucrative publishing offer upon reading his first manuscript. They were taken aback by how critical Liggett's book was of the sitting president. During the tail end of Hoover's presidency, a glut of hastily written books on the president began hitting the market. The manuscript that was once a hot property quickly became just another Hoover book. Eventually, Liggett managed to find a publisher in H.K. Fly Company, the former publisher of Plain Talk. Liggett's book, titled The Rise of Herbert Hoover, The True Story of His Progress from Promoter to President, was not the only critical biography of Hoover, but it was the least sensational and thus most secure against defamation. After its publication, journalist Arthur Robb cited the book as probably more accurate than the run of official biographies, since every statement is carefully documented. The sales of this book helped keep the Liggett family above the poverty line during the Great Depression. But after a number of failed attempts at starting his own paper, Walter decided he was fed up with reporting on the government. In July 1933, the Liggetts moved back to Minnesota, and Walter soon realized just how much his home state had changed since 1910. 
In his absence, the nonpartisan league of his youth had changed its name to the Farmer Labor Party. Many of their tenants remained the same, but the ravages of the Great Depression had shifted their priorities as a party. Early into his new stay in Minnesota, Walter was introduced to Governor Floyd B. Olson. Ah, it's such a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Liggett. I have heard great things about you from our farmer labor friends. Glad to see we've won you back from the Big Apple. Well, I may not stay long, Mr. Olson. I was given an offer to go back to Chicago. Oh, come now. Why would you go back to that den of thieves? We are in dire need of your talents here. What did you have in mind? The party has done great things in your absence, Walt. But I think there are still ways we can spread our message. I think we need a farmer labor newspaper in southeastern Minnesota. And you're just the man to run it. I hope I can live up to your confidence in me, Mr. Olson. The support of this charming politician gave Liggett hope that he could make a difference in his home state. Olson made the arrangements and helped raise money to buy a printing plant. Walter and Edith used the investment to form the Midwest American, a paper which they had full creative control over. With Walter as editor and publisher, and Edith as associate editor, it was a weekly paper proudly proclaiming itself as independent but never neutral. In late 1933, things were looking up for the Liggett family. Walter finally had a platform where he could express his unvarnished opinions and continue his crusade close to home. Or so he thought. Up next, Walter's stubbornness puts him in hot water with the wrong people. And now, back to our story. On October 27, 1933, the first issue of the Midwest American ran in Red Wing, Minnesota, under the watchful eyes of Walter and Edith Liggett. The paper was an immediate success and spawned a sister paper that December, the Austin American, based out of Austin, Minnesota. Though this paper was also run by Liggett, Governor Olson kept an eye on it with a representative on the board. A rift began to form between Walter Liggett and Governor Olson as the governor asserted his influence on the paper's output, preventing Liggett from covering union issues that the governor wished to remain impartial on. Walter finally had had enough and stepped down as editor of the Austin American, citing how the Olson-run board stifled him as an editor and forced him to make ethical compromises. Without Governor Olson's support, running the Midwest American grew taxing on Walter and Edith. In 1934, inevitably, Walter's critical journalistic eye turned on the governor himself, who he had considered such a close ally only a few short months ago. He had secretly suspected Olson of engaging in shady dealings for years, but was horrified to see how deeply Olson's corruption went. During the summer of 1934, a union of Teamsters voted to strike. On Friday, July 20th, 1934, police opened fire on striking workers, wounding 67 people, two of whom later died of their injuries. This event would become known as Bloody Friday. Olson subsequently declared martial law in the state of Minnesota. Part of this proclamation read, it shall be unlawful to publish newspapers defaming the state of Minnesota or any member of the Minnesota National Guard in the field. Walter Liggett and many Minnesotan publishers refused to be silent, declaring that martial law was unjust and should be brought to a swift end. 
As controversy bubbled up around Olson, he was invited to attend a farmer Labor Party meeting to assess whether his beliefs still aligned with those of the party. Walter Liggett was one of the representatives in the room when the belligerent Olson stormed in an hour late. Gentlemen. You're an hour late, Mr. Olson. This is my place of business. I can come and go as I please. Before I answer any of your questions, I have a question for all of you. Who among you will vote for Townley if I don't meet your demands? Raise your hands, please. This is ridiculous. We're not your cabinet, Mr. Olson. You can't just demand oaths of loyalty. That'll be all for you, Mr. Liggett. I'll see about you later. By this point, Walter no longer trusted Governor Olson with the party's interests. On September 28, 1934, the front page story in the Midwest American was written by Walter himself, and it was entitled, Why I No Longer Support Governor Olson. Walter's campaign against Olson wound up permanently staining Walter's reputation. While he would insist that there was nothing personal about his reporting, which never slipped beneath his own rigorous research standards, he could not escape accusations that he had sold out to a personal vendetta. I have no personal quarrel with Floyd B. Olson. He's intensely human, magnetic, likable, and very, very clever. In the same statement, he issued an impassioned defense of his own integrity. For at least 25 years, I've been a sincere radical, and no one can truthfully declare that I ever sold out a radical cause or accepted a single penny for the expression of my political beliefs. While he wasn't without his share of supporters, and while his beloved Edith had had his back every step of the way, Walter Liggett felt like he was fighting a battle on all sides. It's hellishly hard, though, to put up a lone fight such as I've been making, with friends applauding me from the sidelines, but enemies actively going out to ruin me. In an edition of the Midwest American, Walter asserted that he anticipated frame-ups from what he now called the Olson Gang. Almost exactly seven months later, on June 23, 1935, Walter Liggett answered the door to find a policeman standing there. Officer, what can I do for you? Are you Mr. Walter Liggett? I am, yes. What is this about? Kidnapping, sir. You and your friend Frank Ellis have been charged with the abduction and assault of two minors. <laughs> do you have a warrant for a bank robbery as well? I'm quite serious, Mr. Liggett. Come with me, please. Mr. Walter Liggett, you are charged with the kidnapping of Francis Exelby and Teresa Hall as well as the performance of indecent acts upon these two women. How do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Can you explain your relationship to these young women? I ran into Frank Ellis at the Ritz Hotel about a year ago. He had these two young women with him. They were hitchhikers. Hitchhikers? And what did you do with these hitchhikers? Nothing. We had dinner, talked politics, they seemed quite bored, if you ask me. Frank gave them money to go to the movies and get a room for themselves, and we never saw them again. Then how do you explain these charges, Mr. Liggett? I would ask Governor Olson. The abduction charge was completely made up. While there was no concrete paper trail connecting them, 
Walter was absolutely certain that Governor Olson had coerced these young women into giving false testimony against him and his friend, union organizer Frank Ellis. The legal battle was yet another drain on the already tight finances in the Liggett household. Unable to afford a lawyer, Walter was forced to work as his own counsel for the majority of the trial. Edith later wrote that the charge disturbed Walter greatly. He would often ask out of nowhere, no matter what they were doing, Edith, do you think anyone really believes that charge about me? More than anything, he wanted to be sure that the people of Minnesota still trusted his integrity, both as a journalist and as a man. As the trial drew closer, the Midwest American kept publishing, but Walter and Edith spent more and more time soliciting friends to help donate to Walter's legal battle. On October 24, 1935, Walter Liggett received a call from Mrs. Annette Fawcett, a wealthy debutante who claimed she wished to donate to his defense. He went to her room in the local Radisson Hotel. Shortly after arriving, Walter realized that she hadn't invited him there to save him from his financial woes. She had invited him so that he could meet a mutual acquaintance of hers. In walked noted Minneapolis mob boss Isidore Blumenfeld, better known by his nickname, Kid Can. Mr. Walter Liggett, I've heard so much about you. You. Are you two gentlemen familiar with each other? Only by reputation. I don't make a habit of drinking with gangsters. <laughs> I'll leave you two alone then. You've said some very nasty things about me and your rag, Mr. Liggett. What do you have against me? I have never done anything to you. It's not personal. I'm simply tired of seeing a gang of crooks run Minneapolis. I won't mince words here. We want you to lay off. If you do, you'll be well taken care of. <laughs> what kind of hypocrite do you take me for? Keep your hush money. Kid Can suddenly attempted to strike Walter while he was seated. Walter easily evaded the blow and wrestled Kid Can into his own chair. Can made no move to attack again. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm leaving. Forgive me, Mr. Liggett. I'm a passionate man. I let my emotions get the better of me. There's no reason for us to be enemies. You're an honest journalist. I'm an honest businessman. Let's have no hard feelings between each other. Walter accepted Kid Can's apology and his offer to drive him home. Walter would later acknowledge that this was an incredibly naive move. They stopped by a nightclub on their way back to Liggett's house, and Kid Can suggested that they have a no-hard-feelings drink before they both went home. When they arrived at the club, they found bootlegger Brownie Bronstein sitting at a table. He repeated Can's bribe offer, which Walter turned down once again. Ken and Bronstein attacked Walter, delivering vicious blows to his face and head. Several others in the nightclub joined them, and Walter was overwhelmed. Still an accomplished amateur boxer, Liggett defended himself admirably against the seven attackers, managing to stay on his feet. Before a large man ran up behind him and knocked him into the pavement. They continued kicking and beating him until the police arrived, at which point he was able to escape and hail a cab. 
According to his daughter's biography, Walter was badly beaten about the neck, chest, and face. He came home with a black eye, an ear nearly torn off, a split lip, a missing tooth, and bruised ribs. He looked so bad, the cab driver who drove him home did not charge him for the ride. Oh! Oh! Uh. My God, Walter! What happened? It's... uh, fine. Just a little roughed up. I'm calling an ambulance. Get me some ice first. Are the kids asleep? Yes. Good. I don't want them to see me like this. Hello, operator? Can you send an ambulance to... What do you mean they're all busy? There has to be something. Edith called over and over, but that late at night there was only one ambulance available, and it was on another call. Almost two hours later, the ambulance finally arrived and took Walter to the hospital. Walter was visited by detectives during his stay at the hospital. They took his statement and promised to return with updates. After the initial visit, they never returned. It was a well-known fact that Kid Can, much like Al Capone in Chicago, had his hands in pockets all over the city, including Governor Olson's. Edith suspected that these detectives were instructed to destroy Walter's statement on their return to headquarters. From his hospital bed, Walter sent out SOS messages to allies in New York and Washington to help Edith run the Midwest American. He remained bedridden until his trial. Edith, meanwhile, had to manage the task of looking after their kids, work as sole editor of the Midwest American, investigate his case, and raise funds for his legal defense. She was increasingly concerned for the safety of their children. During the trial, they received multiple kidnapping threats toward their son and daughter. The irony of abducting children during a trial accusing Walter of kidnapping was probably lost on whoever made the threats. Despite multiple attempts to postpone the date of the trial for Walter's recovery, he went to trial on November 2nd, nine days after his beating. The trial lasted for an exhaustive five days. Throughout, Walter was barely able to rise from his chair due to his injuries. After a 20-hour deliberation, the jury pronounced him not guilty. The Liggetts took little time to recover from the trial, throwing themselves back into the fight with Olson, who was planning to run for Senate in 1936 against incumbent Republican Thomas D. Shaw, An old friend of Walter's, Carl Beck, spoke to Walter after the trial in an attempt to talk some sense into him. Why do you feel it necessary to take the chances you are taking? Do you have to go against this game? You are exposing not only yourself, but your family. What can you hope to gain? You certainly aren't going to get rich. All you say is true, but I suppose it's in my blood to attack corruption, wherever I meet it. I belong to that breed which wants to improve society. My wife is of the same species of human being. We understand each other and will fight together, side by side, until the end. As expected, the attacks continued. Accusations of anti-Semitism against the Midwest American were some of the most shocking. Some critics called it a, quote, Nazi rag, for the number of Jewish businessmen it claimed were gangsters. Yep, they're still watching. We can't keep this up, Walter. You aren't invincible. Neither are they. 
The truth hits their kind harder than bullets. What good is the truth if you're unable to tell it? I thought you cared about this as much as I do. I do, Walter. Your ideals are why I fell in love with you in the first place. But we can't keep this up. We can't defend ourselves, our children, and our paper all at the same time. We have no other choice. I will not let Olsen win. Is this integrity I hear, or ego? We're so close, Edith. We just need to last until the election. Then we can go anywhere. I promise once the election passes, we can move, relocate the Midwest American, and keep ourselves safe. It's going to be a long year, Walter. I know. During the winter of 1935, Walter and Edith informed each other of everywhere they went and every phone call they had. They continued as before, but were always on the lookout. It's clear that they took the death threat seriously, though Walter was overheard at one point remarking flippantly, By January, either Governor Olson will be impeached, or I'll be full of holes. Was this an actual dismissal of his own danger, or merely Gallo's humor meant to show his friends that he was not afraid of Olson? Starting June of 1935, Every edition of the Midwest American contained Walter's list of 10 reasons to impeach Governor Olson. The last edition he would ever publish widened this list to 12. December 9, 1935 was a busy day for Walter Liggett. He was working from home with Edith on the next issue of the Midwest American. On top of that, he was polishing a speech of his own, a recommendation for the impeachment of Governor Olson. The two did not visit their newspaper plant until later that evening, preferring the solitude of their own home to the packed office. Walter and Edith left later in the evening to run errands and pick their daughter up from the library. They stopped briefly to get groceries and drop a friend off before driving home. The family's Ford V8 pulled up to their home at around 5.40 p.m. Well, we're home. Thank goodness. I'm just about ready to pass out. How about I take the times in and Marta can take the groceries, huh? Don't tease the poor girl. <laughs> okay, I'll get the groceries, but she owes me one. Walter? A pair of headlights flicked on from the shadows and a mysterious vehicle began to rocket towards Walter. He motioned to Edith and Marta, signaling them to stay inside the car. Moments later, five gunshots rang out from within the passing vehicle. All five bullets struck Walter in the chest. When their landlady stepped out to see what had happened, she found Edith cradling Walter's head in her hands. Edith, what happened? Call an ambulance, Alice. Walter has been shot. Don't die, Walter. Don't die. Walter would live for only a few short moments after the shooting. As he grew cold in his wife's hands, spectators gathered to see what had happened. Edith was frantic, insisting they call an ambulance even after she could no longer feel a pulse. Without Walter, she would be in for the most difficult fight of her life, a fight against the corrupt city that had killed her husband. Next week, We'll explore the immediate aftermath of Walter Liggett's murder and follow Edith as she attempts to bring those responsible 
to justice. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the murder of Walter Liggett. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Walter Liggett's life and the circumstances surrounding his murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Stopping the Presses, The Murder of Walter W. Liggett, written by his daughter, Marta Liggett Woodbury. Extremely helpful in our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, Alastair Merton, and Steve Pinto.